As Ewan's already said, we're returning this afternoon uh, to a long-running uh, but fairly spread out series in the Bible book of Matthew. And I think it's been about 18 months since we were last there. Uh, and I'm guessing that means that for most of us, if we were around then, we need a little refresher. Uh, and many of us weren't. Um, so Matthew, the book of Matthew in the Bible, is an, an account of the life of Jesus, one of four that were given in the Bible. And it's written by one of Jesus' uh, original 12 disciples, a man called Matthew or Levi, uh, who was a tax collector. And there's a focus especially, as Matthew tells the story, on Jesus as the king, as the one who has come to to rule and to reign, and a bit of a, a window into what life looks like when Jesus is king. And so there are lots of parables and stories that give us an impression of what it means for Jesus to be king. And Matthew's also keen to to join the dots for us from the the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament. And so frequently he's going to refer back to parts of the Old Testament and show us that that Jesus is the fulfilment of the one who was promised to come. Jesus is the the best, the, the pinnacle. And so as we're reading through Matthew, we'll see lots of quotations. Maybe some of your Bibles will have little footnotes to say this is where that comes from. And Matthew breaks his his book into, in effect, five big sections that all involve Jesus' teaching um, and events that go on. And he, he starts each section where he says, and Jesus finished And then we begin a new section. And for the next three, four months, we're going to be looking at the the fourth and then the fifth sections uh, that uh, Matthew sets out for us. And our aim today is to to look together at the passage that Wendy's just read to us, but hopefully to see some of the, the bigger themes that we're going to see repeated over the next few chapters and the next, I don't know, couple of months, uh, I guess. And and I, I would hope That as we dive into Matthew's gospel, it's going to be helpful to you if you're somebody that's here and you're asking the question, who is Jesus? Maybe you come along regularly and you're asking that question. Who is Jesus really? What is he like? But it's also helpful for us if we're asking the question, what does it look like for me to follow Jesus? What does it look like for me on a Monday morning and a Wednesday afternoon to be a follower of Jesus? So for today, I've got three D's, hopefully to make it memorable to you. The first one is about direction, the goal of the king. Let me read the first couple of verses to us again from Matthew chapter 19. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee And went into the region of Judea, to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. So this is a marker of a new section beginning in Matthew's Gospel. And Jesus is now, we're told, leaving Galilee. He's leaving the north of the country where he has predominantly been. Where he's been slowly and steadily working through his teaching. Through his works, he's been bringing about the the realities of God's blessing and opening up the eyes of the people to see that they could truly know God. 
as they heard, as they watched, as they saw, as they experienced Jesus, they could know God and they can know the blessings of being under King Jesus. And so it's marked by restoration. And it's marked by a hope that ultimately for a people then and a people now, we can be saved. We can be changed. There is something better and greater than what we naturally have in this world. And all of this has been taking place in effect in Nowheresville, in the north of the country. But the ultimate goal of Jesus cannot be completed where he has been. He must eventually go to Jerusalem if he is going to fulfill his goal. If you've got a Bible, turn with me back to chapter 1 of Matthew. If you get to Malachi, you've gone too far. This is how Matthew starts his account. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is the family line of Jesus, the Messiah, the the promised king. And then what Matthew does, he traces us down through the line of the kings of Judah, from David, the most famous king, all the way down to Jesus. But turn over the page, for Jesus is the Messiah, the promised king. But, but why did he come? What sort of king is he? And maybe you'll find these words familiar for some of our Christmas events or services. The angel visits Joseph and tells him about Mary and the child she's carrying. Verse 21, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. This is the goal of Jesus, to save his people from their sins. And he can't do it in Galilee. He's begun to show them what being saved looks like. They've begun to experience the goodness of God. But he has to go to Jerusalem. Jesus himself has outlined this mission, what it is. Flick forward to chapter 16 of Matthew. Verse 21. After the disciples have realised or started to realise who Jesus is, we're told from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem the capital city, and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. He repeats that mission, that goal, that destination again in, verse, in chapter 17, a couple of times. And Jesus himself had described how there, there was a temptation to, to not walk that path. And when one of the disciples, Peter, gave voice to that temptation, Jesus calls it out as a a temptation that comes from Satan. 
the great enemy of God. You can see that in chapter 16. Jesus must go to Jerusalem. And this section of Matthew's gospel that we're going to look at for the next few months is where we're going to see how determined Jesus is to fulfill his goal. Because the closer Jesus gets, the more the opposition and the more the reasons not to do it are going to increase. But as we see Jesus' determination... We're also going to learn more of what it is that he is winning for his people. What this salvation looks like. And so he's going to talk about grace. How people come to know God and it's not through what they do. They can't earn it. And he's going to talk about a life that's marked by humility and self-sacrifice. We're going to see it in a life that is changed. That there is obvious fruit that comes from knowing God and being saved and following Jesus. And we're going to see in all of this that it demands a response. Salvation is of grace. But as we come to see and know Jesus, it will change us. Definitively, obviously. Jesus is determined to fulfill God's plan of salvation despite opposition. He will become the one that was foretold about, the one foreshadowed in the Old Testament. We read chapter 1, verse 1, and two names are highlighted to us. That Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. If we know our Old Testament, and if you don't, I'm going to point you towards some, some characters. Abraham. A man who was promised by God that through his line, through his family, through one seed, one offspring in his line, all the nations on the earth will be blessed. Jesus is committed to that goal. He is the seed of Abraham and he is the the son of David, who God promised to David that one of his sons would be a king like David, but a king whose kingdom would not fail, would not end. That his great son, would establish an enduring relationship between God and his people. We've entitled this series, The Triumph of Grace, because we're going to see Jesus does win. But it's not an easy path. It's not all wonderful and easy and shiny. It's a triumph. Because it's hard won, despite opposition. But it's a triumph of grace. It's a triumph of God's kindness, both to the people that are being saved, but also in the way that they are being saved. And all of this that we will see 
is shown so that we might see clearly who Jesus is. And that we might love him more. And that we, if we follow Jesus, might increasingly mirror him. That we might be a people marked by grace. So let's look at our second point. Divorce. The testing of the king. This section of Matthew's gospel, and realistically, this whole period of the life of Jesus is, as we've said, marked by increasing opposition. Whilst Jesus is going about, as he's moving from Galilee to Judea, moving towards Jerusalem, we see the division that Jesus brings because the crowds love him and follow him and are blessed by him. And the religious leaders become increasingly antagonistic towards Jesus. And I think we understand that, don't we? We understand that as we watch sport or watch football. That when an opposition gets closer towards your goal, you increase the pressure. And that's what happens to Jesus. Jesus is going to be tested in many ways. Theologically, practically, emotionally, spiritually. And he's going to be tested by a variety of people. By his friends. By his disciples. By potential followers and opponents. And even by circumstances. How will Jesus fare? That's the the question for us. As we get into chapter 22 in a few weeks, we'll see that there's a, a string of tests for Jesus. But this is the first one in our section. And this test is a good one because whilst it's a, an emotive issue, divorce, it helps us see truly the heart of Jesus. His heart towards others. And his heart under pressure. So look down again, chapter 19, verse 3. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Jesus, under Jewish law, Old Testament law, is a man able to divorce his wife for whatever reason he wants? Now we're going to need some background to help us understand what's going on here. Why is this a test for Jesus? There's a verse in the the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, where there is a provision that God gives for his people for a legitimate divorce that a man can have from his wife. A putting away or putting aside that is allowed. Now, if you read the context of that passage, you'll discover that it's, in a sense, a, a pretty niche happening. There's multiple divorces being described and remarriages but in those verses there are a couple of key phrases if a man is displeased with his wife or she is displeasing to him or if he finds something indecent now without digging down into the the details and the, the, the language of that that's what the Jewish people did and especially the Jewish leaders and two schools of thought or understanding had sprung up amongst the Jewish religious leaders One was named after a guy called Shammai, and another one after a guy called Hillel. Shammai believed 
that that verse meant that it was uh, legitimate to divorce your wife if she had enacted immodest behaviour or sexual immorality, including to, but not limited to, adultery. Okay, so quite a, a narrow understanding of the verse. Hillel, on the other hand, believed that the phrase displeasing to him meant anything that caused a man to, to be displeased by his wife. And so pretty much all the commentators go for the line, well, if she burns his dinner, he can divorce her. Not commenting on that at all. There were these two groups, two understandings. And as the religious leaders, the Pharisees, come to Jesus, they're, they're seeking, they, they're basically giving him the opportunity to say, well, I'm on this side or I'm on this side. And basically then to put him offside with all the followers of the other group. That's trying to cause people to reject Jesus. Oh, Jesus thinks that. There's nowhere I can follow him now. Will Jesus run away from this? Will he refuse to answer? Will he be a, a politician who will start as though he's going to answer the question and basically talk about something entirely different? Or will he throw some people under the bus? This group are rubbish or this group over here are terrible. Well, let's look at what he says. Verse 4, haven't you read that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus goes back to the beginning. So the opening chapters of the Bible and quotes from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And he says, I've got complete confidence in the way that God has made this world. I trust that what God has given us is good and true and pleasurable. He doesn't get bogged down into a debate that seeks a way out, that sees the worst or looks for the lowest bar. Instead, Jesus' response is to say, God has given us a wonderful thing in marriage. Jesus' response to a question about divorce is delight. Delight in a good thing. This is what marriage should look like, Jesus says. The lifelong union of a man and woman joined together by God. The God who, as he's quoting these verses, echoes the God who made the, the sky and the earth, the land and the sea, who joins them together to make a good world in the same way joined together man and woman. In a good thing called marriage. Jesus states that the intention and design for marriage is not that they should be ended by people at all. They are not meant to be seasonal. They're not meant to be disposable. They reflect very intentionally the love that God has for his people. 
a lasting, committed, passionate, unbreakable bond. Marriages are meant to be places of life, places of refuge and safety, of protection, of love, of provision, a foundation for flourishing, a grounding for growth. It's almost as Jesus says, guys, it's good. Marriage is good. Did you hear me at the back? Marriage is good. Jesus has an incredibly high view of what God has done and planned and purposed. And if we, as followers of Jesus, we ought to have the same high view of marriage. If you're thinking about getting married, this is what Jesus points us towards. Something that God has planned and given. Something that God is involved in. It's something, isn't it, that is echoed in the the words of our traditional marriage service. Promises that are made in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer. Whatever comes, something that's going to last as long as it's in our power. What God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus, what do you think about divorce? I want to go bigger and greater and more beautiful. As ever, as Jesus speaks to people, in front of people, with us listening on, Jesus exposes our hearts. Too often, the hearers, the original hearers, and for us, we think about the lowest bar. What's the minimum that we need to do? What's the pass mark? I don't want to expend any more effort. Maybe I don't feel as though I can risk going for anything better than that. I think that's what the Pharisees are doing. They're coming in and they're, they're, they're debating about this. Well, what's, what can we get away with? What's manageable? What's achievable for us? And Jesus says, you've forgotten how good God is. How good his purposes and his plans and his commands and his ways are. But too often we, we just set our bar so much lower. I think this is what my heart's like. How can I get by? What's the way that I can engineer things so that I'll succeed? Rather than looking at what's the best that I could do. I was thinking about this as I was walking up to the church this afternoon. I, uh, I took my driving test around here. And I deliberately booked my driving test for peak rush hour. Because I thought, then I'll have to do the least. I'll spend my entire driving test sat in traffic. <laughs> and I probably won't have to do much. And I was right. But it's kind of ugly, isn't it? It's kind of, imagine if everybody did that. And we'd probably be even worse at driving than we are now. But that's what they're doing. They've set the bar so low. 
and you can hear the response of the Pharisees and maybe you can hear it in your own heart. But, 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 but you can't be, but let no one separate. Is there no opportunity for divorce? Well, why then? Verse 7, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus' response, God, don't worry about, Moses permitted, not commanded, permitted divorce because of the hardness of people's hearts. That inner stiffening that we have against God's way because I've got my own opinions, I've got my own desires, I've got my own ways. Because of that, God in his kindness permitted divorce. Didn't command it. And so Jesus says, but it was not this way from the beginning. Don't default to the lower setting. Remember how it was from the beginning. There is a reason that we can be divorced. Verse 9, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Jesus is keeping the bar high while saying there are genuine reasons that divorce is permissible and maybe even the right thing. And it's incredibly countercultural. It is to our culture, and I think for some of them, for their culture. We just need to stop for a second and, and think about this. Some of you have been divorced. Jesus is incredibly gracious. The Bible talks about the, the grounds of divorce being for sexual morality, adultery, sexual sin. It also gives an example in 1 Corinthians 7 that divorce is permissible when a spouse has been abandoned. And I think that theologians, Christians disagree on, on the outworkings of this. I think we could, I think, the, the, the argument that the abuse of a spouse is also grounds for legitimate divorce, I, I would agree with that. Come and ask me afterwards if you want to talk further. I don't want us to get bogged down into what about this, what about that. Because what Jesus is saying is keep the bar high because God's plan is good. That's what he's saying here. And he's not giving a lecture. He's not listing all the the fine print and the details and this and that and the other. He's just giving us the headline. And the headline is this. God's plans are good. God gives good gifts. And there is a place for divorce. But those divorce permissions, if you like, are there to protect the vulnerable and the weak and those that have been damaged. This is a loving permission from God, recognising that, well, people are hard-hearted and people are sinful. There is grace in the provision of divorce. And Jesus can say that while still holding that incredibly high bar and say, saying to us, want more. I can give you more. We want to lower the bar, just like the Pharisees. 
But Jesus raises it. And Jesus shows us here his commitment to the goodness of God's way. Even in this discussion on divorce, Jesus is committed to the goodness of God's way. He won't choose the easy way. He trusts in the right way. We don't hear a response from the Pharisees. And I think Matthew is saying to us, they fail to dissuade him. They fail to distract him. Jesus shows that God's way is good and ultimate and worthy. As Jesus goes about his mission, he divides. And even as Jesus is speaking to us this afternoon, he's doing that work in our hearts. Are we trying to bring Jesus down? Or are we allowing Jesus to lift our eyes up? How are you responding to Jesus today? Third thing, discipleship, the call of the king. We don't hear a Pharisee's response, but we do hear the disciples chiming up. Verse 10, the disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only to those whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. The disciples rightly discern as they're listening in that Jesus is setting the bar so high. And their question is to go, I don't think it's probably better not even to get involved in marriage if that's how high the bar is. I think this is one of those moments where as we read the Bible, we want to know more. What causes the disciples to respond like this? I think it's presumed that most of the, the 12 disciples were married. So in the next section, Jesus talks about people who have left their wives to, to follow him. We know that Peter at least had a mother-in-law. I think if he's got a mother-in-law without a wife, he's really getting the game wrong. I love my mother-in-law. She's great. But perhaps we want to know more. Maybe for the wrong reasons. Maybe we want to know more about the disciples' marriage and go, were you hoping for a different answer here? Problems at home? Maybe one of you's got a problem with a wife who snores, or you know, there's a dispute going on in the background about whose turn it is to put the bins out this week, or, or much worse. But they get it. They get that Jesus has raised the bar. That there's no easy way out. That marriage is something that is lifelong and for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, and so on. Is it better not to marry? And Jesus says, not everyone can accept this word. And again, there's a bit of discussion. What's he talking about here? Is he talking about the stuff about marriage and the high bar that he set? Or is he talking about them and the, what they've said, that it's better not to marry? I think it's 
I think there's a, a case for each. I think it makes more sense for Jesus to be talking about their response, that it's better not to marry. And Jesus gives uh, no indication that there are any limits to his comments on marriage. So it makes more sense that he's talking about their comments, not better to not to marry. And Jesus says, that's true. For some people, it is better not to marry. And so he again goes on to talk about eunuchs. Um, I almost want to do a straw poll and say, lift your hands if, if you don't know what a eunuch is. Because if nobody puts their hands up, I can just move on quickly. Oh, no, there are hands. Okay. A eunuch is somebody um, who, who cannot fulfill a marriage sexually. So either because of something that has happened to them, Jesus says, you know, they're born this way, or something that's happened to them in their life, their sexual uh, organs have been removed in some way so that they cannot fulfill the two, a man and woman being joined together and becoming one flesh. There's a, this is singleness, really. And there's a whole tradition of people working in royal courts, especially with uh, the females in the royal courts and men who worked with uh, maybe a queen or a highborn lady. They would be castrated so that there could be no funny business for the protection of the women. And so Jesus gives us these three categories. People who are born that way, those that are made that way, or Jesus introduces a third category of those who live as though they are eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. People who are all out for God's ways and God's purposes. And I think what Jesus is doing here is laying out two paths. As he talks to the disciples, he lays out two paths for life. There's people who are married and people who are unmarried. And he raises the bar high for both. And he's talking about what does it look like to live God's way? What does it look like to, to follow Jesus? Well, if you're married, it's to be, have a great and uncompromising commitment. No matter what occurs, apart from that one exception that he gave. This really high bar of commitment that produces the sort of, at its best, a sort of kingdom-like life. A place of flourishing, a place of happiness, a place of love. Love that will not be removed at the drop of a hat. Or the other path is singleness either through circumstance or choice to choose to be celibate to say no to what so much of our world says is ultimate that there's nothing better than to be married or to have sex and remember jesus says this as a single man here are the two paths that he lays out The one who can accept this should accept it. Depending on our circumstances, depending on our cultures, we may see one of these as harder than the other. 
realistically, in a room this size, there are people whose marriages at the moment are not great. Are hard. And maybe you're looking at single people and thinking, that, that looks preferable. And there are probably single people who are looking at married people going, you don't know how good you've got it. I wish I was married. That would be easier. But remember that Jesus is... He's not accepting a low bar. He's setting our our eyes so much higher as followers of him. What does it look like to follow Jesus? And he says, there's no easy street here. So don't look at marriage and think, well, it would be easier. And don't look at singleness and think, well, it'd be easier. Don't be driven by easy. Be driven by what is good and right and true. Both of these paths are governed by freedom bringing restrictions. So the single person is not to be engaged in sexual activity. And the married person is to be engaged in sexual activity only with one other person. And not to be looking elsewhere whether that's in the flesh or on a screen. Both of these paths, marriage and singleness, can be rewarding and glorifying to God. Paul goes and and brings that out in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. What does it look like to follow Jesus? It looks different to different people. Depending on what God has given you. And maybe that's directly, maybe that's indirectly. Maybe it's what you were born with or maybe it's what you've chosen. But it's not easy. But it is good. And it is something that Jesus models to us. Jesus who leaves Galilee to move towards Jerusalem. Because he trusts God's plan and God's ways. Jesus, when the opposition and the difficulty come, says God's way is better. And we will not accept and will not settle for less than what God has in store for us. And so in our marriages or in our singleness, how do we follow this call of Jesus? We recognise his character. A God who does protect the weak, who does invite the lowly, the God who does heal the broken, the God, in short, who is revealed in Jesus. And we remember his example for us. We remember his triumph. When opposition and difficulty arose, he did not fail, he did not faint, he did not fall, he pressed on. He fixed his eyes on what was to come for the joy set before him, Hebrews tells us. He did what we could never do by ourselves. He lived a life fully trusting, fully dependent on God. Always at every turn saying what God has said and what God has done and what God has planned and what God has purposed is Good and right, even if it's not easy. 
we reorientate our thinking and we remind ourselves that God's plan is the best for us, even if it's not what we choose. Even if your marriage is hard currently, even if singleness is hard and you feel lonely, we do what the psalmist does in Psalm 103. We speak to ourselves and we say, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits. We go where he leads, we listen when he calls. And we see and will see in these verses in Matthew that Jesus only calls us where he's already walked. And he does not fail. He does not fall. We are following a Jesus who models faithfulness in every way, on every day. And he is for us. And he does not want us to settle for less. So much of us does. So much of us is willing to settle for less. And Jesus says, look at what God has made. Look at what God has planned. Follow me. Let me pray. Father, we confess, Lord, that we have often not followed you. We confess that our hearts have been hard. And we take great comfort that, Lord, you are a God who gives grace even to the hard-hearted. Father, as we walk through these chapters in Matthew over the coming months, Lord, show us more of Jesus and lift our eyes, Lord, to your calling. Fill our hearts with faith to trust that your way is good. And Father, let us be delighted to see how Jesus triumphs for us, Lord, and that he will be with us by his Spirit, Lord, so that we might become increasingly like him. Father, help us to sing the words of our final hymn now, Lord, recognizing that they make statements that have not always been true. But Father, help us to sing them with hearts that would want them to be true. Father, help us to take up our cross and to follow Jesus. We pray it for each other. We pray it for ourselves in his name. Amen.